0: Amen. We are here to praise his great name this morning. It's good to see those of you who are here, and I see we've got some people still coming in, and we've, I know we've got people joining us online as well. Welcome, everyone. Um, you know, I, I've, gotta, I've just got to share with you, it's been a little bit of a challenging week for me, and I imagine that all of us have things that we've been dealing with this week, right? Just troubles, struggles, challenges, and I was thinking a lot this week about praise. And I was thinking about Job. I thought about all the trouble he went through. And remember when he found out that his family, had his children had been killed, what did he say? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so we're here regardless of what we've been through, what challenges we face, to praise him because he is worthy.
1: announcements that I want to call to your attention. First of all, if you're here with us as a guest and this is your first time if you're here in person, uh, there should be on the bulletin a flap that you can fill out and put it in the offering plate if you'd Actually, no, we can't put it in the offering plate. What am I saying? You have to put it in the box that's on the table as you leave the sanctuary, uh, since uh, that's where you put your offering, too, because we're not taking up offering as we haven't been doing for a long time, but there is a box on the welcome table out there. Okay, if you are a 60-year-old or older, uh, the, the Shens, that's the, what they call themselves in our church, that age group, they're having a barbecue. And so you can sign up on the welcome f- table for what you might want to bring to the barbecue. And I'm told that uh, Larry is grilling the meat, so bring your own meat plus a side dish. And uh, Larry's grilling. So uh, if you want to get your meat, you've got to be there to watch where he moves it on the grill as he gets everything done just right. Okay. Then I want to invite you, if you're interested in baptism, uh, we are going to be having a baptism in a couple of weeks, or we have one scheduled. No one has signed up or nobody has let us know that they're interested at this point. But I know we've had some people in the past who have said they would like to be baptized, but it didn't work out for them when we did. So please email Megan at megan at dm.com and let her know if you're interested. And that's in two weeks. In one week, we're having a get-to-know-us lunch, so anyone who's new to the congregation, who's never gone through uh, that kind of where we share a little bit about who the church is and what our vision is and mission is and what our doctrinal beliefs are, uh, we'd invite you to come and join us for that, and that is uh, immediately after the service next Sunday in the fellowship hall. We will have a meal that's complimentary, and so we need you to RSVP, though, because You know, we're not going to order pizza or sandwiches or whatever, and then nobody shows up. That's not going to be good. So, we'd appreciate you doing that if you'd let us know. Also, uh, just wanted to let you know that there is a a prayer time for our Haiti team immediately after the service this morning. It's in the fellowship hall. So, I'd appreciate it if, as you see them gathering over there, maybe some of you are chatting, you've got to kind of move away so they can uh, pray. But I'd encourage you all to join them to pray as you would feel led for for the team that's headed to Haiti and for the needs that they have. So we're excited about that opportunity that Norb and Karen are organizing as they prepare to go. Let's pray. Father, your name is a strong and mighty tower and the righteous run into it and they are saved. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence with us. And I pray That as we look into your word, that you would open our eyes as the psalmist prayed. That we might behold wonderful truths from your law. Give us insight that will help transform us by your grace for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, Marla, that's my wife, for those who don't know, and I took our then younger children out to a farm place in northwest Iowa to see an Indian elephant. So imagine, in the, surrounded by the cornfields of northwest Iowa, out on somebody, in somebody's yard is this Indian elephant, and we went out there to see it for ourselves because seeing is believing. It corroborated and validated what we had been told. Hey, there's going to be an Indian elephant out at at the Hanson Farm. So we went out there, and sure enough, our kids were feeding loaves or pieces of bread to this Indian elephant. And it was an amazing, remarkable thing. Amazing thing that God did, and we actually saw it. As we left Matthew chapter 16 last week, Uh, the disciples had made a profound statement that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus went on to kind of articulate to them, look, here's the kind of Christ I am. I'm a Jesus who's going to the cross. I'm a Jesus who's going to suffer. I'm a Jesus who's going to die. And I'm a Christ who's going to rise again. And then I'm going to return. And oh, by the way, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. you got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. But if you do guess what? There will be a reward because he who saves his life, in this, saves his life, will lose, whoever loses his life is going to save it. So you want to lose your life, you'll save it. And then I'm going to come back and reward you for it. And so Jesus had laid this out for the disciples and he told them, now what incentive would they have for paying such a high price following Jesus? Well, he told us in Matthew chapter 16, and Mark articulated it for us as he laid out in the text, verses 25 through 27, it's the reward that's coming, and it's the return of Jesus in glory. That's the incentive you have, we would have, for following this Jesus. And he said, look, so you don't think that I'm just blowing smoke at you in... No, he didn't actually say that. Okay, but that's my tra- translation. Uh, Jesus said, so that you don't think this is all, you know, made up. In verse 28 of chapter 16, he promised them that some, that, that some of them living right then would, would not die before they saw the Son of Man coming in his glory in his kingdom. That's a down payment that he will return with rewards that he said in Matthew 16, 25 through 27. And what we encounter now as we go into chapter 17 is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. It's my understanding that as we look at the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 17 and the transfiguration of Jesus, what we're seeing is Jesus fulfilling the promise he had made in chapter 16, verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them. If you have a phone or your device, you can look there. If you don't have either, you can reach in the seat in front of you somewhere in the row in front of you, there should be a Bible, and you could open it there to Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, the first 13 verses, what we see here in the text, at least as the way I'm laying it out, is there, there are two convincing evidences, okay? Two convincing evidences that Jesus is the King of Kings, He is the Messiah, that should Convince us as believers, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to remain and to press on and to stay faithful and be willing to count the cost and suffer and deny ourselves for the sake of this King who came to redeem us. And that should be a compelling argument for those of you who maybe are skeptical, maybe you're not even interested, that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that you would surrender your life to Him. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid, and Jesus came to them and touched them. And said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, and he said, Elijah is coming. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them. About John the Baptist. And we see as we start this text. That there's this proof. That is laid out for us. Of our Lord's glorious. Identity as God in the flesh. Verse 1 says, and after six days, six days later. Six days later, uh, because of the connection here with Moses and Elijah, links us, I think, back and, and could very well link us back to Moses, who after six days heard God speak from the cloud in Exodus chapter twenty-four, verse fifteen, six days God spoke to Moses from the cloud. In a sense, if we look through the text, in many ways Jesus becomes a replacement for Moses, or or the fulfillment of Moses as the ultimate lawgiver and and prophet of Elijah. So we see in many ways there's a there's this kind of this nuances in which Jesus is coming on the scene and he's kind of. Picking up where Moses left off, or doing what Moses left unfinished, what Elijah left unfinished. We'll tease it out as we go. And Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. These three guys, along with Andrew, formed what we might call Jesus' inner circle. Okay? These three guys were with Jesus, front row, front and center, when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Front and center. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus left the the others and took these three along with him to have this exclusive picture of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and these three, Paul tells us in Galatians 2.9, would become pillars of the church, Jesus Christ. They would be the ones upon which Jesus was, was founding his church, and they took him to a high mountain. You know, I read over this, and I was like, okay, so I took him to a high mountain. But here's an interesting fact for me is that high mountains are very prominent in Matthew. Jesus went out into the wilderness, and we see him being tempted by Satan in high places on a high mountain. Jesus uttered his sermon on the mount on a mountain. We see Jesus speaking to the crowd to the multitude in Matthew 15, from a mountain, we'll later see in Matthew 24 that all of it discourses from a mountain. We'll see that Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 from a mountain. Mountains are prominent, but not just for Jesus and not just in Matthew. But it connects us back to the other three character, other two characters we see in this text of Moses and Elijah, because we know that a mountains are very significant in Moses' ministry, right? Mount Sinai, where he received the law, it's a mountain experience. Elijah, up on Mount Carmel, where he's doing battle with the prophets of Baal. We see all these connections between the mountains and the mountains. And it's important that we understand that connecting these three is this significant place of a high mountain. And the reality of Jesus' divinity, his glorious ministry, his glorious Personification and representation of God the Father is given to us, and it's based on three facts. First of all, Jesus manifests the divine glory in verse 2. And he was transfigured. Metamorphosized is the root Greek word. Change of form is metamorphosis. You know it from biology class, you know, it's a little caterpillar and then the caterpillar becomes a what a butterfly right but jesus didn't really change form here but his transformation was so magnificent that this was the word that was used i mean jesus didn't become a non-bodily person no his form wasn't changed but his appearance became remarkably changed in two specific ways and the text tells us that first of all his face shone like the sun all right you've been out uh, i mean maybe even today you go out maybe it was yesterday and you 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 hear a bird or you see a bird and it's flying by and you look up and oh the sun blinds your eyes or you're playing catch with somebody and you throw a ball in air whoa wait a second and you just see these these spots in your eyes this was the sun. Jesus, his, he shone like the sun. And additionally, the text says, his garments became white as light. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark translates it this way, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can launder them. Tied with bleach cannot compete with what we see in the person of Jesus, depicted here. The similes, that's what they are, the, the, the figure something, there figures of speech of the, the bright, the sun and the light, they're clearly describing the glory of God. This is the manifest glory of God and they're seeing it before them. And it's in, per, in fulfillment, I think, of the promise given in chapter 16, verse 28. It says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom in the glory of God There it was. It provided a testimony to Jesus' deity to give confidence to his disciples then and now of the reality of who he is as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who is going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to promise. He promised to return in in brilliant glory. He says it in verse 20, said, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. Okay, And he did, but not... Finally, see, Jesus doesn't merely imitate God's glory. Jesus doesn't even merely reflect God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And we need to see that. It's not just like, oh, so it's kind of a reflection of God. No, he is God. He has the glory of God and it's manifest upon him and he's fully divine with all the authority and all the ability to do what he said he was going to do. On Wednesdays, our men's Bible study's been going through the Book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter forty-four, Benjamin is caught with the Pharaoh, uh, well, with Joseph's cup, and Judah, his brother, is pleading for his brother, and he says to Joseph, "Now, Joseph is another brother of Judah, but he doesn't know that uh, Judah doesn't know that Joseph is his brother." He thinks his brother is dead because they betrayed him several chapters earlier. And so Jude is begging with his brother who is next to Pharaoh. He says, you're just as if you are Pharaoh. You're as if, it's as if you are Pharaoh, so I understand my place before you. He's pleading with him. Well, Jesus is not like next to Pharaoh. Jesus is on a separate plane than Pharaoh. Jesus is God. And the Gospel of John, John recounts this very scene when he says in John 1.14, And we beheld, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. What does it mean? We saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I've seen it, he says. Seeing is believing. And John had seen the glory. Jesus' full heavenly glory had been veiled. In the incarnation. When Jesus became a man, he, he gave up his glory. You look at second, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And he, he, he was not manifest in all of his glory. But here we, the, the window is kind of open, just a shade. We just see a glimpse of it. We have these blackout shades on our east windows. And if you just raise them up a little bit, boom. You know, it's like all this light comes in. Isn't it amazing what just a little bit of light will do? Here, Jesus is manifest in all of his full glory. And so he manifests his glory. But then he meets with divine company as another testimony to his divinity. In verses 3 and 4, who, do, who shows up? And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared. It's like, okay, just wow. Boom, there they are. Hello? Moses and Elijah just showed up, you know. To them. Now, why these guys? The two highly esteemed saints in the Old Testament, one representing the law, Moses, and the other representing the prophets, Elijah, meeting with he who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus. In Matthew 5.17, I didn't come to you know, abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, Moses had encountered God before and God's glory. And we know this back in Exodus chapter 34. He had not only encountered God's glory, but he had reflected God's glory. Remember, he came down off of Mount Sinai and he had to put a veil over himself because the glory of God was shining so brightly from him. That, but it was temporary. And we know Elijah was a big shot. I mean, this, this guy was somebody who was a, a prophet of God. He'd taken on the prophets of Baal. He had performed great miracles. And guess what? He never even died. Boom, chariots of fire. He's into heaven. And now he's back here. we, we, we got a big powwow going on. These were some big, big people, uh, important people. And we see this, these, these pillars of the faith. Moses and Elijah, they weren't talking to the disciples. These guys are like seeing this big meeting. You know, it's like you're in on a huge meeting and you're not the person who's being talked to or talked about. But they're talking to Jesus. And we learn from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, that they were speaking to him about his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. They were talking to Jesus about what was coming up. What was coming up in Jerusalem was his departure. And what they're talking about is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You see, just as God had used Moses in the Exodus to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, so now God was going to send Jesus to the cross to deliver his people from slavery to sin. Interesting word, departure, which is from, we can trace, you can get the same word, exodus. (laughs) You know, exit. Well, isn't that what Moses did? He led the people in exodus, and now Jesus, who is linked to Moses in many ways in this text, is now going to lead his people from slavery, from sin. So the amazing thing is that these these Old Testament witnesses, they confirmed not only that Jesus is divine, that he's the Son of God, the glorious Savior of the world, but they confirmed his mission, his ministry as well. His gracious and glorious plan for humanity. His departure. Just as he had said to Peter, remember, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer Die in three days, I'll rise from that. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, Lord, not you, not you. You can't do that. Oh, yeah? Moses and Elijah. So, Peter, you want to buck Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Think you better get in line. Uh, you're, you're, out of, you're out of line here, buddy. I remember sitting at a meeting one time, and there were uh, uh, some important people with regard to a mission, and I was just a spectator. And I was just listening to these people talk about some big ministry plans that they had. And I realized very short, soon on and it, I didn't say anything because you know, I had nothing to contribute. I had no, I'm just a spectator. So Peter, James, and John are like me in that meeting. Only this is an even higher level meeting. And they have nothing to say. You know, it's a high stakes. Jesus is the key player in what's happening here. Okay, And so the crowd, Peter, James, and John... Moses and Jesus, and the conversation, speaking of his departure, uh, point us to the glorious activity of the Son of God in saving lost mankind. That's what's going on here. The spiritual significance of this whole thing, I don't think is fully understood, but it's not missed by Peter, who then chimes in, as Peter and only Peter can do. You know, He's got something to say. And the first thing that comes to his mind is the first thing out of his mouth. Lord, it's really good that we're here. Yeah, it's good that you're here, Peter. So, hey, why don't I just, you know, construct a a, a little tabernacle for you and for Moses and for Elijah. That'd be okay. That'd be a good thing. See, Peter's, Peter's heart is in the right place. But he's misguided in his intention. He, he, he's, he's a little bit misguided, and you, you see this in verse 4. He said, and that's what I just quoted, he says, Peter answers, he said, oh, Lord, it's good for us to be in this place. If you wish, I can make a tabernacle for you, for Moses, and for Elijah. Now, here's the deal. Peter's good intentions, he wanted to hold on and capture this temporary manifestation of God's glory. He wanted to Maybe the kingdom's now. We're going to plant it right here, and we're going to keep it permanent because a tabernacle means a sacred tent. Okay, What he was doing was he was ignoring the need of Jesus to go to the cross. Just plant it right here. We'll permanently set up the kingdom right now. No, and he was also eclipsing the uniqueness of Jesus, by saying that we could just build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah and for Jesus, like everybody's all on the same plane. No. Peter, we're not going to hold on to the glory here in this temporary moment because that glory is coming later. And guess what? Jesus is not Moses and Elijah. Jesus is God. So we can't keep him confined. We can't hold him down. So Jesus manifests the divine glory of God. Jesus manifests Meets with those people who are from God. And thirdly, we see that Jesus merits the divine testimony of God. In verse 5, while he was still speaking. Good point. Peter is in mid-sentence, and God interrupts him. Okay? It's like, while he's still speaking. Well, you know, why don't we build a temple, a little tabernacle for you? And God says, this is my beloved son. Now, notice the text. It says that from a bright cloud. We see Jesus with the brightness of the sun and the clothes that are white like no launderer can launder them. And then all of a sudden we have God himself speaking from a cloud. A bright cloud. Okay, Reminiscent of the Old Testament activity where God spoke from a cloud in the giving of the law, and in the wilderness wandering, and in the completion of the tabernacle, God spoke out of a cloud, and the words that he uttered, remarkably, are the exact same words that God uttered at Jesus' baptism, with a little addition. Okay? This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, all of us know what it's like to have a beloved son, uh, or a, a someone that we consider our son, or many of us know what that's like. I want you to see this. Uh, this is my beloved grandson, okay? It's not mine. My- He'll be two in July, okay? That's my boy, right? Do you hear the father's buttons popping as he said, this is my boy, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And to call him his son, is to call Him equal with the Father. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 18. We know this, and we should understand it, that Jesus was not crucified for anything else than claiming to be the Son of God, making Himself equal with God. He's God in the flesh. Jehovah in their presence. And He says, that's my boy with great pleasure. The disciples apparently, uh, apparent confusion about this suffering Messiah, called for this additional endorsement by the Father of who Jesus was and this call to obedience. Listen to Him. Well, you listen to Him in the same way you would listen to me because He's the voice of God to you. So listen to Him as if God's kind of talking to Peter and to the rest of us vicariously, okay? Uh, He's saying, God says, you know, if, if, if Jesus said he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise on the third day, guess what? It's exactly what he's going to do. Guess what? If, if Jesus um, declares that he will rise from the dead and one day he'll return, return in the glory of his Father and reward everyone according to their deeds, guess what? He's going to do that. And if he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, and if you do, if you lose your life in this world, you'll gain it, guess what? You can take it to the bank because it's Jesus who's speaking. Then do it. See, Moses and Elijah are prophets, but Jesus is the prophet That Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And you see this on the screen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. This is Moses speaking from like me, like me, Jesus, Moses. See the connection? Jesus is the replacement actually of Moses in this. From among you for your countrymen and what? To him you shall listen. Listen to me. Listen to him, he says. God is confirming. Boom, right there. This is the promise of Deuteronomy 18.15 fulfilled in the person of my son. Listen to him. They knew they were in the presence of God. But not from Jesus, only when God spoke, right? And then they, 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 they fell down and they, they worshiped God. But only Matthew records this little incident in verse 6. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And then in verse 7, and Jesus came to them and touched them. He touched them. Guys, this is not a dream. This is real. I'm here. And who did they see? They looked up, and whom to whom did they look? Jesus alone. It's about me. I, he touched them and he spoke to them. His, and and the, his contact and the comment that he made comforted them and confirmed the reality of their experience. This is not a dream. When our kids were young and there was a storm, like all little kids, you know, they come running into that room and jump in the bed, you know, and we would touch them and we would speak to them. And say it's gonna be okay. Here's Jesus. Guys, it's it's okay. I'm here, it's real, it's gonna be okay. And Later, Peter would confirm it if you, uh, you see 2 Peter chapter 1. So we've seen John giving testimony to what this experience meant to him. And now we have Peter giving testimony to the experience. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him. When did he receive honor and glory from the Father? Well, I think he's speaking of this incident right here in Matthew 17. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's Peter confirming what God has done. And so the, the disciples' attention was, was intentionally riveted on Jesus, God in their presence, who deserves their full obedience. So you got three respected witnesses, Peter, James, and John, who have visually and verbally, who are visually and verbally, able to testify to the reality of what happened. And according to the Old Testament law and the New Testament law, Deuteronomy 19.15 and Matthew 18.16, they can confirm beyond doubt that this is real. The presence of two or three witnesses, if anything in the presence of two or three witnesses is confirmed as real. And here we have these witnesses confirming as real that Jesus is the King, the Messiah in all of his glory. And what difference does that make for us? It's like, okay, wonderful. This is beautiful. And it is. So what? One of the key questions you ask in Bible study. Read the text and you go, so what? And modifying a uh, the, the alliteration from David Platt, I, I, would, I would suggest this, so what? Let's look on Jesus. Let us look on Jesus reverently. Okay. Let us look upon Him reverently, upon His glory, upon His majesty, upon His transcendence, upon His sovereignty, upon His generosity, And let it transform us. Let it steal us in our commitment to follow him. Let us look on him and understand who he is. Allowing the vision of his glory to captivate our attention and to motivate our action. If we see Jesus for who he really is, it should make a difference in our lives. Beginning, what, what did they do? They they bowed down and they worshiped, not only God himself, but the Son. Let us listen to him, okay? Let's listen. So let's look to him. Let's listen to him faithfully. To follow his word unquestionably. When he defines what it is to be married, this is it. When he says this is how you should treat your enemy, this is it. We should love our enemies. We should pray for our enemies. When he says that we should forgive, we should forgive. When he says that we should walk with humility and brokenness and humbleness and gentleness and kindness, this is it. This is what he calls us to. When he says we should care for the needy and the hurting, that's what God calls us to. We should listen to him. When he says that he's going to go to the cross and die there to pay the price that you and I deserve to pay, that's it. There's salvation in no other name. No other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. All roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one way. It's a one-way street. It's through Jesus. He is the latter. John chapter 1. The angels of heaven are ascending and descending, but there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. When our kids were younger, I watched a lot of Disney movies, uh, and one of them, that, this one scene from the, the Disney movie, Aladdin, particularly sticks in my mind. It's uh, Aladdin uh, is out on the town with uh, Jasmine, who is the, the king's daughter, and she sneaks out of town and she's running around with this little hoodlum. And uh, they're, they're being chased by the, the Capitol police and they're trying to escape. And they're on the top of this high uh, tower. And he looks at her and he's got one foot on the door on the window. And he says, Do you trust me? Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust him enough? based on the evidence we have that He is the Son of God, that He's the Savior of the world, to we trust Him enough to turn from our own self-directed life and surrender our will to His and say this, Lord Jesus, I need You, and I confess You as my Lord and Master. Do we trust Him enough to give money for the cause of Christ? You know, I have a little challenge here. You know, uh, all of us, most all of us uh, got some sort of a, a... Government give me program right A stimulus check you know just uh, really worked hard for that and uh, we, uh, we we worked we got the money I said what are we doing with that money? We give God any of that money? It's His. Maybe we should you know just thought. Uh, we, we use God's money. Do we trust Him enough to use our money for His glory? Do we trust Him enough to pray for those who are in persecuted churches, and do we pray him, uh, uh, trust Him enough to pray for the unreached people of the world that God would reach down and give them the message of salvation? Do we trust Him enough to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him? To stand up in our workplace, to stand up with our friends and our family, and say, "This is God's truth. It is His word. I will not deviate from it." I'm sorry. I want to love you, but I do not love sin and sin. will lead you to hell and I don't want you to go to hell so I'm going to tell you about your sin so that you can be forgiven as you return from your sin and trust in this Jesus. Trust Him enough. As Mark said, to take a stand for Christ that may wind some of us up in jail. That may cause us to lose our tax-exempt status. It's happening in Canada. Pastors doing what I'm doing right now are in jail. Will we live for Him sacrificially? Will we look to Him, listen to Him, live for Him sacrificially? Daily denying ourselves. And will we, will we long for His return? Now that shouldn't be too hard in these days. <laughs> it's getting easier to long for the return of Jesus. Okay? So we see this. We see that Jesus, the proof of His glorious identity. Then we see, secondly, The proof of our Lord's messianic ministry. And we see his activity fulfills two messianic criteria. This is verses 9 through 13. First, his ministry was proclaimed by the prophets. Uh, Notice what he says. And and as they were coming down from the mountains, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And I'm reading this text, and I'm going, "What, what is that? I mean, like, where did that come from? All of a sudden, and, and I think rightly we should, but it's not that totally disjointed. You see, the, he wanted them to be quiet because the disciples, like a lot of other people then, wanted to make Jesus king then. If they'd seen the glory of God and they went down and said, Oh, wow, we just saw Jesus and all of his glory. Okay, well, let's, let's get him on the throne right now. No, can't do that. Jesus knew that the cross must precede the crown. Okay? The cross. And after his resurrection, it would be clear that he didn't come to liberate them from Rome. He came to liberate them from Satan. Okay, And so the suffering, the death, and the resurrection were part of what he was about to do. And he needed to make sure that they did that. You see, the prophets had foretold this. The priests had passed over it and the people were present, were were. Like, forgetting it. And he wanted them to see and be clear on it. Suffering and death was part and parcel of what Jesus was supposed to do. Read. I'm just going to give you these verses real quickly. We're not going to look over them. But Psalm 22, verses 15 through 18. And Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. The death, the suffering and death of Christ were part and parcel of the Old Testament. His resurrection, that's Psalm 16, verses 11 and following. He's to rise from the dead. Okay? Okay. Verse 10, Psalm 16, verse 10. Jesus affirmed what the prophets declared concerning the Messiah. He must suffer and die, not as a punishment for his sin, but as a punishment for the sins of mankind. Okay, So that, as as Isaiah the prophet said, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sorrows. Chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Now, you can read it in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Do we have that? Yeah. It was in our sickness that we, he himself bore. Our sicknesses, okay? He himself Our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's why he went, and it's told in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, guys, just keep your... Keep it under wraps until I die and rise again, until this is all fulfilled. The Messiah's mission is salvation because every one of us is a sinner and every sinner deserves his judgment and his wrath. The wages of sin is death. But God in his infinite mercy sent his son Jesus and that's what he's talking about. If he'd have been set up on the throne then, none of us could be saved. Because he had to go to the cross where his blood would be shed as the atoning sacrifice, as the full payment for our sin. God would be satisfied by the shed blood of Christ as a payment for our sin so that all who would believe would be redeemed and saved. That's the plan of God. And the resurrection just confirms it. I'm skipping over all the First Corinthians stuff, but it's 1 Corinthians 15. That's what you need to write down because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins. And if we're still in our sins, then we're of all men most to be pitied. But here's the deal. In verse 50, chapter 15, verse 20, says, But Christ did rise from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are to come. And because Christ rose from the dead, we can believe that those who believe in him will rise too. That's why the end of chapter 16 makes sense. Because who cares if he's coming in his glory? <laughs> Unless we're going to join him. And if we know him, we'll join him. What Scripture promised, Jesus fulfilled. He sent, he came to seal our pardon and to secure our justification through the cross. Secondly, his ministry was preceded by Elijah's presence. Now, this is where it gets gnarly, so hold on with me for just a couple minutes because this is the complicated part of the text. Some people say, what do you do all week? Well, I try to figure this out. That's what I'm doing all week, okay? Here here he says, he says, and, 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 and they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Uh, and then they said, Well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then Jesus gives them an answer. So here's the deal. In verse 9, the command of verse 9, is in relationship to the promise of his suffering and his death. And his resurrection. That, that was perplexing to them. And it prompted the question, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, the disciples had recognized Jesus as the Christ, right? But then he said he was a Christ of a different sort than they had expected, one who was going to suffer and die and and, and rise again, right? But you couple that with the fact that who had just been in the picture? Elijah. And then the scribes had been talking about the necessity of Elijah coming before the Messiah. And so naturally they're going, well, you're going to die? But Elijah is supposed to come first. He was here, but now he's gone. And so where's Elijah? And if, you know, they knew the scene, Elijah first, Jesus second, then the consummation of the kingdom. So it's understandable that they were a little bit confused, and so all of this discussion prompted their recollection of a prophetic passage in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which says, Elijah must come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. So they're wondering, where's Elijah? Isn't he supposed to be here? We thought he was coming first, and you had it right. Okay, so they're saying they saw only Messiah without Elijah, causing confusion, and some to claim that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He said he was the Messiah, but Elijah's supposed to come first, and if Elijah's not here, then how can he be the Messiah? So Jesus answers all that, OK? And here we go. OK? If you look, he gives three-part answer, beginning in verse 11. And Jesus answered and he said, "Elijah is coming." Okay, so here's your answer. Elijah is coming. A promise of a future coming Elijah, to restore all things, just like Malachi said he would do.? Okay? Secondly, Jesus identified John the Baptist as Elijah. That's verse twelve. Okay, and they did. Uh, Elijah already came. So he's saying to them one thing: Elijah is coming, but Elijah already came. All right, and so they're going. And you see this in Matthew chapter eleven, verses fourteen and fifteen. Uh, they, they, he said that he was the Elijah who was who was to come. Well, then thirdly, Jesus declared that the mistreatment of John. You look at the verses, we're going to read it, but verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him. So who is he talking about? But did to him whatever they wished, which is a reference to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, because they had beheaded him. So he already came to you. So thirdly, Jesus declared that the mistreatment of John foreshadowed what was going to happen to him, because, and they're going to do the same thing to me. He says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, they're going to do the same thing to me. So based upon Jesus' statement in verse 12, the disciples say, oh, so John the Baptist is Elijah. Okay, so he came and he prepared the way for the Lord. Okay, I get that a little bit. So Elijah, he's Elijah already came. And his suffering and death is what Jesus is going to experience. Pointed ahead to, the, to Jesus. But here's the kicker. John wasn't actually Elijah, and John said that. You can write this one down. And John, the Gospel of John chapter one verse twenty one. Are you are you Elijah? And John goes, No, I'm not Elijah. But he's one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Luke chapter one verse seventeen. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, so he was an Elijah-like figure who prepared the way for the Lord, so that Jesus could say, "I am the Messiah." That Elijah has already come, and but he also say that Elijah is still coming, because John the Baptist wasn't one, wasn't him. He was a messenger announcing the Messiah, and that's what we see from Isaiah chapter forty verse three, one who will come preparing the way. We see it also in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. In Matthew chapter 11, there is this guy who's coming, preparing the way for the Lord. He's going to speak the truth. That was John the Baptist. He was that Elijah, but he's not the ultimate Elijah because Elijah is still coming. So there's coming a day. There will be Elijah who will prepare the way for the return of the Lord that he speaks of at the end of chapter 16. So is it all confused now? John was an Elijah-like figure who validated the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but they weren't waiting for two returns of Jesus. They thought it was only one time, but it's a two-shot deal. Jesus is going on after his death and resurrection. He's going on to the Father. He's coming back. There's going to be another Elijah who prepares the way before the rest of the kingdom is brought, in back, brought back. Okay, that's fine. I know, you, I know you're kind of looking at me. Deer in the headlights, it's all right. Elijah, There's a second advent, folks. The cross must precede the crown. And so there was an Elijah-like figure who prepared the way for the Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah, and then there's going to be another Elijah who's coming before the second coming of Christ. To travel overseas, you need two forms of ID. Photo ID, right? Driver's license, passport, some sort of identification. Jesus, to prove... He is the Messiah, had two forms of ID. His glorious manifestation of His presence and the marvelous revelation of His ministry. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. So how will these truths make a difference? If you're here and listening or here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all I can say to you is this Jesus is the Christ who came and died to save you from your sins, turn from your sins, and trust him today. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've got three takeaways for you. The first one is gaze upon his glory as it's seen in this passage and in this book Gaze upon his glory to steal you, to strengthen you, to solidify you for ministry. To sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. Because he is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. And he's going to do what he said he would do. He saved us from our sins. He's going to return to take us to glory, to reward everyone according to their deeds. Secondly, give ourselves to him fully by obeying and conveying his word by obeying and conveying you see honesty and humility and generosity and extending mercy praying for enemies you know being gracious with each other you know like some people are annoying and i'm not You know, that's the way we think, you know. It's like, uh, so it's other people that are annoying, but not me. I I couldn't be annoying to anybody. And we put up with each other. And we care about each other. And we're loving to our enemies and kind to those who mistreat us. Why? Because Jesus has to be, and it costs us. It's costly. Give ourselves to him fully. He's coming again. And gratefully appreciate His mercy. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him. You're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of no merit to yourself or me, anybody. Praise God He came and rescued us. Praise God He didn't let Peter set up the tents. Praise God He didn't listen to the the temptation in the wilderness of the devil who said why don't you just bow down and worship me i'll give you authority over all this stuff you know no because if he would had done that the cross would have never happened and we would never be redeemed give gratefully appreciate his mercy And let us ask God for courage to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him as unpopular and as unpleasant as that might be. And as we come here today and conclude our service, guess what? Jesus was up on the mountain, revealing his glory, but he was headed down the hill to a small hill called Calvary, where he would finish the work. And when we take this bread and we take this cup, we remember the work that He accomplished on Calvary so that we can join Him in glory. And let us do so with sober hearts, but also with celebratory hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, and Your love. I thank You for the manifestation of the marvelous, magnificent, glorious, transcendent, preeminent, and sovereign Son, your Son, our Savior, God in the flesh, Jesus. And I pray that we would gaze upon His glory, that it would be a motivation and captivate us. I pray that you would help us to gratefully appreciate your mercy and let us give ourselves fully to serve you and honor you and live for you sacrificially. We pray in Jesus' name.